Section 36 of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arnie Horton. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. Section 36 John Adams. Part 2. Immediately upon his arrival at home, Mr. Adams was reappointed by Massachusetts as a delegate to the Continental Congress, but he never resumed his seat in that body, which was now just about to expire. When the new government came to be organized under the newly adopted Constitution, as all were agreed to make Washington president, attention was turned to New England for a vice president. This office was then held with much more regard than now. In fact, as the Constitution originally stood, the candidates for the presidency and vice presidency were voted for without any distinct specification as to rank, the second office falling to the person having the second highest vote. Out of 69 electors, John Adams received the votes of 34, and this being the second highest number, he was declared vice president. The 35 votes were scattered upon some 10 different other candidates. By virtue of his new office, he became president of the Senate, a position not very agreeable to his active and leading temperament, being better fitted for debate, but one in which the close division in the Senate, often resulting in a tie between the supporters and opponents of the new system, many times gave him a controlling voice. In the first Congress, he gave no fewer than twenty deciding votes, always upon important organic laws, and always in support of Washington's policy. Down to this time, Adams had sympathized with Jefferson politically, with whom he had served both in Congress and abroad. On the subject of the French Revolution, which now burst upon the world, a difference of opinion arose between them. From the very beginning, Adams, then almost alone, had argued that no good could come from that movement. As the revolution went on and began to break out in excesses, others began to be of this opinion. Adams then gave public expression to some of his ideas by the publication of his Discourses on Davila, furnished to a Philadelphia paper, and afterward collected and published in one volume taking the history of nations, particularly Davila's account of the French civil wars and the general aspects of human society as his texts. Adams pointed out as the great springs of human activity, at least in all that related to politics, the love of superiority, the desire of distinction, admiration and applause, nor, in his opinion, could any government be permanent or secure which did not provide as well for the reasonable gratification as for the due restraint of this powerful passion repudiating that democracy pure and simple then coming into vogue and of which jefferson was the advocate he insisted that a certain mixture of aristocracy and monarchy was necessary to that balance of interests and sentiments without which as he believed free governments should not exist this work which reproduced more at length and in a more obnoxious form the fundamental ideas of his defense of the american constitution made adams a great bugbear to the ultra 
democratic supporters of the principles and policy of the french revolutionists and at the second presidential election in 1792 they set up as a candidate against him george clinton of new york but mr adams was re-elected by a decided vote the wise policy of neutrality adopted by washington received the hearty concurrence of adams while jefferson left the cabinet to become in nominal retirement the leader of the opposition adams continued as vice president to give washington's administration the benefit of his deciding vote it was only by this means that a neutrality act was carried through the senate and that the progress was stopped of certain resolutions which had previously passed in the house of representatives embodying restrictive measures against great britain intended or at least calculated to counterwork the mission to england on which mr jay had already been sent washington being firmly resolved to retire at the close of his second presidential term the question of the successorship now presented itself jefferson was the leader of the opposition who called themselves republicans the name democrat being yet in bad odor and though often imposed as a term of reproach not yet assumed except by a few of the more ultra partisans hamilton was the leader of the federal party as the supporters of washington's administration had styled themselves though hamilton's zeal and energy had made him even while like jefferson in nominal retirement the leader of his party he could hardly be said to hold the place with the federalists that jefferson did with the republicans either adams or jay from their age and long diplomatic service were more justly entitled to public honor and were more conspicuously before the people hamilton though he had always spoken of adams as a man of unconquerable intrepidity and incorruptible integrity and as such had already twice supported him for vice-president would yet have much preferred jay the position of adams was however such as to render his election far more probable than that of jay and to determine on his selection as candidate of the federalist party jay by his negotiation of the famous treaty which bears his name had for the moment called down upon himself the hostility of its numerous opponents adams stood moreover as vice-president in the line of promotion and was more sure of the new england vote which was absolutely indispensable to the success of either as one of the candidates was taken from the north it seemed best to select the other from the south and the selection of thomas pickney of south carolina was the result of this decision indeed there were some hamilton among the number who secretly wished that pickney might receive the larger vote of the two and so be chosen president over adam's head this result was almost sure to happen from the likelihood of pickney's receiving more votes at the south than adams as he really did could the northern federal electors be persuaded to vote equally for adams and pickney which hamilton labored to effect the fear however that pickney might be chosen over adams led to the withholding from pickney of eighteen new england votes so that the result was not only to make jefferson vice president as having more votes than pickney but also to excite prejudices and suspicions in the mind of adams against hamilton which being reciprocated by him 
led to the disruption and final overthrow of the federal party it had almost happened such was the equal division of parties that jefferson had this time been elected president the election of adams who had seventy-one votes to jefferson's sixty-eight only being secured by two stray votes cast for him one in virginia and the other in north carolina tributes of revolutionary reminiscences and personal esteem chosen by this slender majority mr adams succeeded to office at a very dangerous and exciting crisis in affairs the progress of the french revolution had superinduced upon previous party divisions a new and vehement crisis jefferson supporters who sympathized very warmly with the french republic gave their moral if not their positive support to the claim set up by its rulers but which washington had refused to admit that under the provisions of the french treaty of alliance the united states were bound to support france against great britain at least in defense of her west india possessions the other party the supporters of adams upheld the policy of neutrality adopted by washington at the same time that washington had sent jay to england to arrange if possible the pending difficulties with that country he had recalled morris who as minister to france had made himself obnoxious to the now predominant party there and had appointed monroe in his place this gentleman instead of conforming to his instructions and attempting to reconcile france to jay's mission had given them assurance on the subject quite in contradiction of the treaty as made both the formation and ratification of which he had done his best to defeat he in consequence had been recalled by washington shortly before the close of his term of office and c c pickney a brother of thomas pickney had been appointed in his place the french authorities offended at this change and the ratification of jay's treaty in spite of their remonstrances while they dismissed monroe with great ovations refused to receive the new ambassador sent in his place at the same time issuing decrees and orders highly injurious to american interests almost the first act of mr adams as president was to call an extra session of congress not only was a war with france greatly to be dreaded and deprecated on account of her great military and naval power but still more on account of the very formidable party which among the ultra republicans she could muster within the states themselves under these circumstances the measure resolved upon by adams and his cabinet was the appointment of a new and more solemn commission to france composed of pickney and two colleagues for which purpose the president appointed john marshall of virginia and elbridge gary of massachusetts instead of receiving and openly treating with those commissioners talleyrand lately an exile in america but now secretary of foreign affairs to the french government entered into intrigue with them through several unaccredited and unofficial agents of which the object was to induce them to promise a round bribe to the directors and a large sum of money to fill the exhausted french treasury by way of purchasing forbearance as pickney and marshall appeared less pliable than gary talleyrand finally obliged them to leave after which he attempted though still without success to extract money or at least the promise of it from gary 
the publication of the dispatches in which these discreditable intrigues were disclosed an event on which talleyrand had not calculated produced a great excitement in both america and europe talleyrand attempted to escape by disavowing his agents and pretending that the american ministers had been imposed upon by adventurers gary left france and the violation of american commercial and maritime rights was pushed to new extremes in america the effect of all of this was to greatly strengthen the federal party for the time being the grand jury of the federal circuit court for pennsylvania set the example of an address to the president applauding his manly stand for the rights and dignity of the nation philadelphia which under the lead of mifflin and mckean had gone over to the republicans was once more suddenly converted as during washington's first term to the support of the federal government that city was then the seat of the national newspaper press all the newspapers hitherto neutral published there as well as several others which had leaned decidedly toward the opposition now came out in behalf of adam besides an address from five thousand citizens the young men got up an address of their own this example was speedily imitated all over the country and the spirited replies of the president who was now in his element served in their turn to blow up and keep ablaze the patriotic enthusiasm of his countrymen these addresses circulated everywhere in the newspapers were collected at the time in a volume and they appeared in adam's works of which they form a characteristic portion a navy was set on foot the old continental navy having become extinct an army was voted and partly levied of which washington accepted the chief command and merchant ships were authorized to protect themselves the treaty with france was declared at an end and a quasi-war with france ensued it was not however the policy of france to drive the united states into the arms of great britain even before gary's departure talleyrand had made advances tending toward reconciliation which were afterward renewed by communications opened with van murray the american minister to holland the effect of the french outrages and the progress of the french revolution had been to create in part of the federal party at least a desire for an absolute breach with france a desire felt by hamilton and by at least three out of the four cabinet officers whom adams had chosen and kept in office in his message to congress announcing the expulsion of pinckney and marshall adams had declared that he would never send another minister to france without assurance that he would be received this was on the twenty first of july seventeen ninety eight therefore when on the eighteenth of february following without consulting his cabinet or giving them any intimation of his intentions he sent into the senate the nomination of van murray as minister to france the act took the country by surprise and thus hastened the defeat of the federal party his actions being so contrary to his avowed intentions some previous acts of adams such as the appointment of gary which his cabinet officers had striven to prevent and his disinclination to make hamilton second in command until vehemently urged into it by washington 
had strengthened the distrust entertained of adams by hamilton adams in his attempt to reopen diplomatic intercourse with france was accused of seeking to reconcile his political opponents of the republican party and thus secure by unworthy and impolitic concessions his own re-election as president the opposition to van murray's nomination prevailed so far that he received two colleagues ellsworth of connecticut and davies of north carolina but the president would not authorize the departure of ellsworth or davies until he had received explicit assurances from talleyrand that they would be duly received as ministers on arriving in france they found the directory superseded by napoleon bonaparte who was first consul with whom they managed to arrange the difficulty but however beneficial to the country this mission proved very disastrous to adams personally and to the political party to which he belonged he justified its appointment on the ground of assurances conveyed to him through a variety of channels that france desired peace and he excused himself for his not having consulted his cabinet by the fact that he knew their mind without asking it to be decidedly hostile that is to any such attempt as he had decided to make the masses of the federalists fully confident of adam's patriotism were well enough disposed to acquiesce in his judgment but many of the leaders were implacable the quarrel was further aggravated by adam's dismissal of his cabinet officers and the construction of a new cabinet the pardon of fries who had been convicted of treason for armed resistance to the levy of certain direct taxes in pennsylvania was regarded by many at that time as a piece of misplaced lenity on the part of adams dictated it was said by a mean desire of popularity in a case where the severest example was needed but adams can hardly suffer with posterity from his unwillingness to be the first president to sign a death warrant for treason especially as there was room for grave doubts whether the doings of this person amounted to treason as defined by the constitution of the united states in this divided condition of the federal party the presidential election came on adams was still too popular with the mass of the party to think of dropping him altogether and the malcontents reduced to the old expedient of attempting by secret understanding and arrangements to reduce his vote in the electoral college below that of c c pinckney the other candidate on the federal ticket the republicans on the other hand under the prospect of an arrangement with france rapidly recovered from the blow inflicted upon them by the violence and mercenary rapacity lately charged upon their french friends but which they now insisted was a charge without foundation taking advantage of the dissatisfaction at the heavy taxes necessarily imposed to meet the expenses of warlike preparations and especially of the unpopularity of the alien and sedition laws two acts of congress to which the prospect of war had led they pushed the canvas with great energy while in thomas jefferson and aaron burr they had two leaders unsurpassed for skill in party tactics and in burr at least one little scrupulous as to the means to be used not only was the whole blame of the alien and sedition acts to which he had merely assented without even recommending 
laid on Adam's shoulder, but he was the object of vehement and most bitter attacks for having surrendered, under one of the provisions of Jay's treaty, one Thomas Nash, an English sailor, charged with mutiny and murder, nor was it against his public acts alone, nor even to his political opponents, that these assaults on Mr. Adams were confined. With strong feeling and busy imagination, loving both to talk and write, Adams had been betrayed into many confidences and into free expressions of feeling, opinions, and even conjectures and suspicions, a weakness very unsuited to the character of a statesman, and one which Adams had during his life many times the occasion to rue. During Washington's first term of office, Adams had thus been led into a confidential correspondence with Tench Cox, who at that time held the position of Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and had afterward been appointed supervisor of the internal revenue since adam's accession he had been dismissed from his place on the charge of being a spy upon the treasury department in the service of the aurora the principal newspaper organ of the opposition with which party cox sympathized and since his recent dismissal from office acted in this state of mind cox betrayed a confidential letter to him from adams which after being handed around in manuscript for some time to the great damage of adams with his own party was finally printed in the aurora of which cox had become one of the principal contributors the purport of this letter written as long ago as may seventeen ninety two was to give countenance to the charge of the opposition that washington's cabinet and of course adams which followed the same policy was under british influence and that the pinckney brothers candidates with adams on the presidential ticket were especially liable to this suspicion the publication of this letter was followed by a still more deadly blow in the shape of a pamphlet written printed and signed by hamilton probably intended by him for private distribution among his friends but which was made public by aaron burr who had succeeded in obtaining some of the proof sheets this pamphlet had its origin in the same charge against hamilton of being under the influence of british gold thrown out by adams in private conversation to this he had refused to give any explanation when written to by hamilton though when a similar request was made by c c pickney in consequence of the publication of the letter to cox adams fully exonerated in a published letter both pickney and his brother from any suspicion which his letter to cox might seem calculated to convey hamilton declared in the conclusion of his pamphlet that as things then stood he did not recommend the withholding of a single vote from adams yet it was the leading object of his pamphlet to show without denying adams patriotism or integrity or even his talents that he had great defects of character which disqualified him for the position of chief magistrate and the effect which he desired it to have must have been to give c c pickney the presidency by causing a certain number of votes to be withheld from adams the result of the election however was to throw out both the federal candidates while adams received forty-five votes and pickney fifty-four jefferson and burr each received seventy-three in the ensuing struggle between 
Jefferson and Burr, Adams took no part whatever. Immediately on the expiration of his term of office, he left Washington, where shortly before the seat of government had been moved, without even stopping to be present at the inauguration of Jefferson, against whom he felt a sense of personal wrong, probably thinking he had been deluded by false professions as to Jefferson's views on the presidential chair. Though both were much given to letter-writing, and had to within a short time before been on terms of friendly intercourse, this state of feelings on the part of Adams led to strict non-intercourse for the next thirteen years. The only acknowledgment which Adams carried with him in this unwelcome and mortifying retirement for his twenty-five years' services was the privilege which had been granted to Washington on his withdrawal from the presidency and after his death to his widow and bestowed likewise upon all subsequent ex-presidents and their widows of receiving his letters free of postage for the remainder of his life fortunately for adams his thrifty habits and love of independence sustained during his absence from home by the economical and managing talents of his wife had enabled him to add to what he had saved from his profession before entering public life savings from his salaries enough to make up a sufficient property to support him for the remainder of his life in conformity with his ideas of a decent style of propriety and solid comfort almost all his savings he had invested in the farming lands about him in his vocabulary property meant land with all the rapid wealth then being made through trade and navigation he had no confidence in the permanency of any property but land views in which he was confirmed by the commercial revulsions of which he lived to be a witness adams was the possessor partly by inheritance and partly by purchase of his father's farm including the house in which he himself was born he had however transferred his own residence to a larger and handsomer dwelling nearby which had been forfeited by one of the refugee tories of the revolution and purchased by him where he spent the next quarter of a century in this comfortable home acquired by himself he sought consolation for his troubled spirit in the cultivation of his lands in books and in the bosom of his family mrs adams to her capacities as a housekeeper steward and farm manager added a brightness and activity of mind and a range of reading such as fully qualified her to sympathize with her husband in his public as well as his private career she shared his tastes for books and as his letters to her are unsurpassed by any american letters ever yet published so hers to him as well as to others from which a selection has also been published show her though exhibiting less of nature and more of formality than he yet worthy of admiration and respect as well as of the tenderness with which he always regarded her to affections strong enough to respond to his a sympathy equal to his highest aspirations a proud feeling and an enjoyment of it equal to his own she added what is not always found in such company a flexibility sufficient to yield to his stronger will 
without disturbance to her serenity or his and without the least compromise of her own dignity or her husband's respect and deference for her while she was not ignorant of the foibles of his character and knew how to avail herself of them when a good purpose was to be served by it yet her admiration of his abilities her reliance upon his judgment her confidence in his goodness and her pride in his achievements made her always ready to yield and to conform his happiness and honor were always her leading object this union was blessed with children well calculated to add to this happiness just at the moment of his retirement from office private grief was added to political disappointment by the death of his second son charles who had grown to manhood had been married and had settled in new york with flattering prospects but had died under painful circumstances which his father speaks of in a contemporary letter as the deepest affliction of his life leaving a wife and two infant children dependent on him colonel smith an officer of the revolution who had been adam's secretary of legation at london and who had married his only daughter did not prove in all respects such a son-in-law as he would have wished smith's pecuniary affairs becoming embarrassed his father-in-law had provided for him by several public appointments the last of which was that of the surveyor of new york which position he was allowed to hold until eighteen o seven when he was removed from it in consequence of his implications in miranda's expedition nor did thomas the third son though a person of accomplishments and talents fully answer the hopes of his parents but all these disappointments were more than made good by the eldest son john quincy who subsequently to his recall from the diplomatic service abroad into which washington had introduced him and in which his father urged by washington had promoted him was chosen one of the senators in congress from massachusetts all consolations domestic or otherwise at mr adams command were fully needed never did a statesman sink more suddenly at a time too when his powers of action and inclinations for it seemed unimpaired from a leading position to more absolute political insignificance his grandson tells us that while the letters addressed to him in the year prior to march first eighteen o one may be counted by the thousands those of the next year scarcely numbered a hundred while he wrote even less than he received nor was mere neglect the worst of it he sank loaded with the jibes the sneers the execrations even of both political parties into which the nation was divided in his correspondence which appears to have gradually increased and extended itself mr adams loved to re-explain his theoretical ideas of government on some points of which he pushed jefferson hard and which the result of the french revolution so far as then developed seemed to confirm another subject in which he continued to feel a great interest was theology he had begun as an arminian and the more he had read and thought and the older he grew to be the freer views he took though clinging with tenacity to the religious institutions of new england it would seem from his correspondence 
that he finally curtailed his theology to the ten commandments and the sermon on the mount of his views on this point he gave evidence in his last public act to which we now approach mrs adams had died in eighteen eighteen but even that shock severe as it was did not loosen the firm grasp of the husband on life its enjoyments and its duties when in consequence of the erection of the district of maine into a state a convention was to meet in eighteen twenty to revise the constitution of massachusetts in the framing of which mr adams had taken so leading a part though in his eighty-sixth year he was chosen a delegate by his townsmen upon his first appearance with a form yet erect though tremulous with age in this convention which was composed of the very cream of the great minds with which the state abounded mr adams was received by members standing and with every demonstration of affection and esteem and a series of resolutions were forthwith passed containing an enumeration and warm acknowledgment of some of his principal public services and calling on him to preside but this while duly acknowledging the compliment he declined on the score of his age and infirmities the same cause also prevented his taking any active part in the proceedings yet he labored to secure a modification of the third article of the bill of rights on the subject of public worship and its support an article which when originally drafting the rest of that instrument he had passed over to other hands but the time had not yet come for such changes as he wished the old puritan feeling was still too great to acknowledge the equal rights political and religious of other than christians yet however it might be with his colleagues and fellow-citizens mr adams in this movement expressed his own ideas one of his latest letters written in eighteen twenty five and addressed to jefferson is a remarkable protest against the blasphemy laws so-called of massachusetts and the rest of the union as being utterly inconsistent with the right of free inquiry and private judgment it is in the letters of mr adams of which but few have ever been published that his genius as a writer and a thinker and no less distinctly his character as a man is displayed down even to the last year of his protracted life his letters exhibit a wonderful degree of vitality energy playfulness and command of language as a writer of english and we may add as a speculative philosopher little as he ever troubled himself with revision and correction he must be placed first among americans of all the several generations to which he belonged excepting only franklin and if franklin excelled him in humor and geniality he far surpassed franklin in compass and vivacity indeed it is only by the recent publication of his letters that his gifts in these respects are becoming well known the first installment of his private letters published during his lifetime though not deficient in these characteristics yet having been written under feelings of great aggravation and in a spirit of extreme bitterness against his political opponents was rather damaging to him than otherwise in the interval from eighteen o four to eighteen twelve mr cunningham a maternal relative had drawn him into a private correspondence in which 
still smarting under a sense of injury he had expressed himself with perfect unreserve and entire freedom as to the chief events of his presidential administration and the character and motives of the parties concerned in them by a gross breach of confidence of which mr adams like other impulsive and confiding persons often had been the victim those letters were sold by cunningham's heir in eighteen twenty four while the writer and many of the parties referred to were still alive they were published as a part of the electioneering machinery against john quincy adams they called out a violent retort from colonel pickering who had been secretary of state to washington and adams till dismissed from office by the latter but though mr jefferson was also severely handled in them they occasioned no interruption to the friendly relation which had been re-established between him and mr adams those two leading actors in american politics at first so cooperative and afterward so hostile again reunited in friendly intercourse having outlived almost all of their fellow actors continued to descend hand in hand to the grave adams lived to see his son president and to receive jefferson's congratulations on the same by a remarkable coincidence they both expired on the fiftieth anniversary of the declaration of independence in which they both had taken so active a part adams however being the survivor by a few hours of adams personal appearance and domestic character in his old age his grandson gives the following account in figure john adams was not tall scarcely exceeding middle height but of a stout well-knit frame denoting vigor and long life yet as he grew old inclining more and more to corpulence his head was large and round with a wide forehead and expanded brows his eye was mild and benignant perhaps even humorous when he was free from emotion but when excited it fully expressed the vehemence of the spirit that stirred within his presence was grave and imposing on serious occasions but not unbending he delighted in social conversations in which he was sometimes tempted to what he called rodomontade but he seldom fatigued those who heard him for he mixed so much of natural vigor of fancy and illustration with the store of his acquired knowledge as to keep alive their interest for a long time his affections were warm though not habitually demonstrated toward his relatives his anger when thoroughly aroused was for a time extremely violent but when it subsided it left no trace of malevolence behind nobody could see him intimately without admiring the simplicity and truth which shone in his actions and standing in some awe of the power and energy of his will it was in these moments that he impressed those around him with a sense of his greatness even the men employed on his farm were in the habit of citing instances some of which have been remembered down to the present day at times his vehemence became so great as to make him overbearing and unjust this was apt to happen in cases of pretension and any kind of wrongdoing mr adams was very impatient of cant or of opposition to any of his deeply established convictions 
neither was his indignation at all graduated to the character of the individuals who might happen to excite it he had little respect of persons and would hold an illiterate man or raw boy to as heavy a responsibility for uttering a crude heresy as the strongest thinker or the most profound scholar the same writer makes the following remarks on his general character his nature was too susceptible to emotions of sympathy and kindness for it tempted him to trust more than was prudent in the professions of some who proved unworthy of his confidence ambitious in one sense he certainly was but it was not the mere aspiration for place or power it was a desire to excel in the minds of men by the development of high qualities the love in short of an honorable fame that stirred him to exult in the rewards of popular favor yet this passion never tempted him to change a course of action or to suppress a serious conviction to bend to a prevailing error or to disavow one odious truth in these last assertions we do not fully concur they involve some controverted points of history however they may be made with far more plausibility of mr adams than of the greater portion of political men there is much in the life of john adams worthy of careful consideration he rose from poverty to distinction he was a capable man capable of filling the highest place in the estimation of his posterity yet his serious faults led to his political ruin the careful perusal of his life will enable one to understand the principles of the two great parties of today modified though they be the fundamental principles remaining the same end of section thirty six john adams part two